Section 4 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meg Triton The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith Part 1, Section 2, Chapter 3 Of the Unsocial Passions there is another set of passions, which, though derived from the imagination, yet before we can enter into them, or regard them as graceful or becoming, must always be brought down to a pitch much lower than that to which undisciplined nature would raise them. These are hatred and resentment, with all their different modifications. With regard to all such passions, our sympathy is divided between the person who feels them and the person who is the object of them. The interests of these two are directly opposite. What our sympathy with the person who feels them would prompt us to wish for, our fellow-feeling with the other would lead us to fear. As they are both men, we are concerned for both, and our fear for what the one may suffer damps our resentment for what the other has suffered. Our sympathy, therefore, with the man who has received the provocation necessarily falls short of the passion which naturally animates him, not only upon account of those general causes which render all sympathetic passions inferior to the original ones, but upon account of that particular cause which is peculiar to itself, our opposite sympathy with another person. Before resentment, therefore, can become graceful and agreeable, it must be more humbled and brought down below that pitch to which it would naturally rise, than almost any other passion. Mankind, at the same time, have a very strong sense of the injuries that are done to another. The villain, in a tragedy or romance, is as much the object of our indignation as the hero is that of our sympathy and affection. We detest Iago as much as we esteem Othello, and delight as much in the punishment of the one as we are grieved at the distress of the other. But though mankind have so strong a fellow-feeling with the injuries that are done to their brethren, they do not always resent them the more that the sufferer appears to resent them. Upon most occasions, the greater his patience, his mildness, his humanity, provided it does not appear that he wants spirit, or that fear was the motive of his forbearance, the higher their resentment against the person who injured him. The amiableness of the character exasperates their sense of the atrocity of the injury. Those passions, however, are regarded as necessary parts of the character of human nature. A person becomes contemptible, who tamely sits still and submits to insults without attempting either to repel or to revenge them. We cannot enter into his indifference and insensibility. We call his behavior mean-spiritedness, and are as really provoked by it as by the insolence of his adversary. Even the mob are enraged to see any man submit patiently to affronts and ill-usage. They desire to see this insolence resented, and resented by the person who suffers from it. They cry to him with fury, to defend or to revenge himself. If his indignation rouses at last, they heartily applaud and sympathize with it. It enlivens their own indignation against his enemy, whom they rejoice to see him attack in his turn, and are as really gratified by his revenge, 
provided it is not immoderate, as if the injury had been done to themselves. But though the utility of those passions to the individual, by rendering it dangerous to insult or injure him, be acknowledged, and though their utility to the public, as the guardians of justice, and of the equality of its administration, be not less considerable, as shall be shown hereafter, yet there is something still disagreeable in the passions themselves, which makes the appearance of them in other men the natural object of our aversion. The expression of anger towards anybody present, if it exceeds a bare intimation that we are sensible of his ill-usage, is regarded not only as an insult to that particular person, but as a rudeness to the whole company. Respect for them ought to have restrained us from giving way to so boisterous and offensive an emotion. It is the remote effects of these passions which are agreeable. The immediate effects are mischief to the person against whom they are directed. But it is the immediate and not the remote effects of objects which render them agreeable or disagreeable to the imagination. A prison is certainly more useful to the public than a palace, and the person who founds the one is generally directed by a much juster spirit of patriotism than he who builds the other. But the immediate effects of a prison, the confinement of the wretches shut up in it, are disagreeable and the imagination either does not take time to trace out the remote ones, or sees them at too great a distance to be much affected by them. A prison, therefore, will always be a disagreeable object, and the fitter it is for the purpose for which it was intended, it will be the more so. A palace, on the contrary, will always be agreeable, yet its remote effects may often be inconvenient to the public. It may serve to promote luxury, and set the example of the dissolution of manners. Its immediate effects, however, the conveniency, the pleasure, and the gaiety of the people who live in it, being all agreeable, and suggesting to the imagination a thousand agreeable ideas, that faculty generally rests upon them, and seldom goes further in tracing its more distant consequences. Trophies of the instruments of music or of agriculture, imitated in painting or in stucco, make a common and an agreeable ornament of our halls and dining-rooms. A trophy of the same kind, composed of the instruments of surgery, of dissecting and amputation knives, of saws for cutting the bones, of trepanning instruments, etc., would be absurd and shocking. Instruments of surgery, however, are always more finely polished, and generally more nicely adapted to the purposes for which they are intended than instruments of agriculture. The remote effects of them, too, the health of the patient, is agreeable. Yet as the immediate effect of them is pain and suffering, the sight of them always displeases us. Instruments of war are agreeable, though their immediate effect may seem to be in the same manner pain and suffering. But then it is the pain and suffering of our enemies, with whom we have no sympathy. With regard to us, they are immediately connected with the agreeable ideas of courage, victory, and honor. They are themselves, therefore, supposed to make one of the noblest parts of dress, and the imitation of them one of the finest ornaments of architecture. It is the same case with the qualities of the mind. The ancient Stoics were of opinion that, as the world was governed by the all-ruling providence of a wise, powerful, and good God, 
every single event ought to be regarded as making a necessary part of the plan of the universe and as tending to promote the general order and happiness of the whole that the vices and follies of mankind therefore made as necessary a part of this plan as their wisdom or their virtue and by that eternal art which adduces good from ill were made to tend equally to the prosperity and perfection of the great system of nature no speculation of this kind however how deeply soever it might be rooted in the mind could diminish our natural abhorrence for vice whose immediate effects are so destructive and whose remote ones are too distant to be traced by the imagination it is the same case with those passions we have been just now considering their immediate effects are so disagreeable that even when they are most justly provoked there is still something about them which disgusts us these therefore are the only passions of which the expressions as i formerly observed do not dispose and prepare us to sympathize with them before we are informed of the cause which excites them the plaintive voice of misery when heard at a distance will not allow us to be indifferent about the person from whom it comes as soon as it strikes our ear it interests us in his fortune and if continued forces us almost involuntarily to fly to his assistance the sight of a smiling countenance in the same manner elevates even the pensive into that gay and airy mood which disposes him to sympathize with and share the joy which it expresses and he feels his heart which with thought and care was before that shrunk and depressed instantly expanded and elated but it is quite otherwise with the expressions of hatred and resentment the hoarse boisterous and discordant voice of anger when heard at a distance inspires us either with fear or aversion we do not fly towards it as to one who cries out with pain and agony women and men of weak nerves tremble and are overcome with fear though sensible that themselves are not the object of the anger they conceive fear however by putting themselves in the situation of the person who is so even those of stouter hearts are disturbed not indeed enough to make them afraid but enough to make them angry for anger is the passion which they would feel in the situation of the other person it is the same case with hatred mere expressions of spite inspire it against nobody but the man who uses them both these passions are by nature the objects of our aversion their disagreeable and boisterous appearance never excites never prepares and often disturbs our sympathy grief does not more powerfully engage and attract us to the person in whom we observe it than these while we are ignorant of their cause disgust and detach us from him it was it seems the intention of nature that those rougher and more unamiable emotions which drive men from one another should be less easily and more rarely communicated when music imitates the modulations of grief or joy it either actually inspires us with those passions or at least puts us in the mood which disposes us to conceive them but when it imitates the notes of anger it inspires us with fear joy grief love admiration devotion are all of them passions which are naturally musical their natural tones are all soft clear and melodious and they naturally express themselves in periods which are distinguished by regular pauses 
and which upon that account are easily adapted to the regular returns of the correspondent airs of a tune. The voice of anger, on the contrary, and of all the passions which are akin to it, is harsh and discordant. Its periods, too, are all irregular, sometimes very long, and sometimes very short, and distinguished by no regular pauses. It is with difficulty, therefore, that music can imitate any of those passions, and the music which does imitate them is not the most agreeable. A whole entertainment may consist, without any impropriety, of the imitation of the social and agreeable passions. It would be a strange entertainment which consisted altogether of the imitations of hatred and resentment. If those passions are disagreeable to the spectator, they are not less so to the person who feels them. Hatred and anger are the greatest poison to the happiness of a good mind. There is, in the very feeling of those passions, something harsh, jarring, and convulsive, something that tears and distracts the breasts, and is altogether destructive of that composure and tranquillity of mind which is so necessary to happiness, and which is best promoted by the contrary passions of gratitude and love. It is not the value of what they lose by the perfidy and ingratitude of those they live with, which the generous and humane are most apt to regret. Whatever they may have lost, they can generally be very happy without it. What most disturbs them is the idea of perfidy and ingratitude exercised towards themselves, and the discordant and disagreeable passions which this excites constitute, in their own opinion, the chief part of the injury which they suffer. How many things are requisite to render the gratification of resentment completely agreeable, and to make the spectator thoroughly sympathize with our revenge? The provocation must first of all be such that we should become contemptible, and be exposed to perpetual insults, if we did not, in some measure, resent it. Smaller offenses are always better neglected. Nor is there anything more despicable than that forward and captious humor which takes fire upon every slight occasion of quarrel. We should resent more from a sense of the propriety of resentment, from a sense that mankind expect and require it of us, than because we feel in ourselves the furies of that disagreeable passion. There is no passion of which the human mind is capable concerning whose justice we ought to be so doubtful concerning whose indulgence we ought so carefully to consult our natural sense of propriety, or so diligently to consider what will be the sentiments of the cool and impartial spectator. Magnanimity, or a regard to maintain our own rank and dignity in society, is the only motive which can ennoble the expressions of this disagreeable passion. This motive must characterize our whole style and deportment. These must be plain, open, and direct determined without positiveness, and elevated without insolence, not only free from petulance and low scurrility, but generous, candid, and full of all proper regards, even for the person who has offended us. It must appear, in short, from our whole manner, without our laboring affectedly to express it, that passion has not extinguished our humanity and that if we yield to the dictates of revenge, it is with reluctance, from necessity, and in consequence of great and repeated provocations. When resentment is guarded and qualified in this manner, it may be admitted to be even generous and noble. CHAPTER Four, OF THE SOCIAL PASSIONS 
as it is the divided sympathy which renders the whole set of passions just now mentioned upon most occasions so ungraceful and disagreeable so there is another set opposite to these which a redoubled sympathy renders almost always peculiarly agreeable and becoming generosity humanity kindness compassion mutual friendship and esteem all the social and benevolent affections when expressed in the countenance or behavior even towards those who are not peculiarly connected with ourselves please the indifferent spectator upon almost every occasion his sympathy with the person who feels those passions exactly coincides with his concern for the person who is the object of them the interest which as a man he is obliged to take in the happiness of this last enlivens his fellow-feeling with the sentiments of the other whose emotions are employed about the same object we have always therefore the strongest disposition to sympathize with the benevolent affections they appear in every respect agreeable to us we enter into the satisfaction both of the person who feels them and of the person who is the object of them for as to be the object of hatred and indignation gives more pain than all the evil which a brave man can fear from his enemies so there is a satisfaction in the consciousness of being beloved which to a person of delicacy and sensibility is of more importance to happiness than all the advantage which he can expect to derive from it what character is so detestable as that of one who takes pleasure to sow dissension among friends and to turn their most tender love into mortal hatred yet wherein does the atrocity of this so much abhorred injury consist is it in depriving them of the frivolous good offices which had their friendship continued they might have expected from one another it is in depriving them of that friendship itself in robbing them of each other's affections from which both derive so much satisfaction it is in disturbing the harmony of their hearts and putting an end to that happy commerce which had before subsisted between them these affections that harmony this commerce are felt not only by the tender and the delicate but by the rudest vulgar of mankind to be of more importance to happiness than all the little services which could be expected to flow from them the sentiment of love is in itself agreeable to the person who feels it it soothes and composes the breast seems to favor the vital motions and to promote the healthful state of the human constitution and it is rendered still more delightful by the consciousness of the gratitude and satisfaction which it must excite in him who is the object of it their mutual regard renders them happy in one another and sympathy with this mutual regard makes them agreeable to every other person with what pleasure do we look upon a family through the whole of which reign mutual love and esteem where the parents and children are companions for one another without any other difference than what is made by respectful affection on the one side and kind indulgence on the other where freedom and fondness mutual raillery and mutual kindness show that no opposition of interest divides the brothers nor any rivalship of favor sets the sisters at variance and where everything presents us with the idea of peace cheerfulness harmony and contentment on the contrary how uneasy are we made when we go into a house in which jarring contention sets one half of those who dwell in it against the other where amidst affected smoothness and complacence suspicious looks and sudden starts of passion betray the mutual jealousies which burn within them and which are every moment ready to burst out through all the restraints which the presence of the company imposes
Those amiable passions, even when they are acknowledged to be excessive, are never regarded with aversion. There is something agreeable even in the weakness of friendship and humanity. The too tender mother, the too indulgent father, the too generous and affectionate friend, may sometimes, perhaps, on account of the softness of their natures, be looked upon with a species of pity, in which, however, there is a mixture of love, but can never be regarded with hatred and aversion, nor even with contempt, unless by the most brutal and worthless of mankind. It is always with concern, with sympathy and kindness, that we blame them for the extravagance of their attachment. There is a helplessness in the character of extreme humanity, which, more than anything, interests our pity. There is nothing in itself which renders it either ungraceful or disagreeable. We only regret that it is unfit for the world, because the world is unworthy of it, and because it must expose the person who is endowed with it as a prey to the perfidy and ingratitude of insinuating falsehood, and to a thousand pains and uneasiness, which, of all men, he the least deserves to feel, and which, generally, too, he is, of all men, the least capable of supporting. It is quite otherwise with hatred and resentment. Too violent a propensity to those detestable passions renders a person the object of universal dread and abhorrence, who, like a wild beast, ought, we think, to be hunted out of all civil society. CHAPTER V. OF THE SELFISH PASSIONS Besides those two opposite sets of passions, the social and unsocial, there is another which holds a sort of middle place between them. It's never either so graceful as is sometimes the one set, nor is ever so odious as is sometimes the other. Grief and joy, when conceived upon account of our own private good or bad fortune, constitute this third set of passions. Even when excessive, they are never so disagreeable as excessive resentment because no opposite sympathy can ever interest us against them. And when most suitable to their objects, they are never so agreeable as impartial humanity and just benevolence, because no double sympathy can ever interest us for them. There is, however, this difference between grief and joy, that we are generally most disposed to sympathize with small joys and great sorrows. The man who, by some sudden revolution of fortune, is lifted up all at once into a condition of life greatly above what he had formerly lived in, may be assured that the congratulations of his best friends are not all of them perfectly sincere. An upstart, though of the greatest merit, is generally disagreeable, and a sentiment of envy commonly prevents us from heartily sympathizing with his joy. If he has any judgment, he is sensible of this, and instead of appearing to be elated with his good fortune, he endeavors, as much as he can, to smother his joy, and keep down that elevation of mind with which his new circumstances naturally inspire him. He affects the same plainness of dress, and the same modesty of behavior which became him in his former station. He redoubles his attention to his old friends, and endeavors more than ever to be humble, assiduous, and complacent. And this is the behavior which in his situation we most approve of, because we expect, it seems, that he should have more sympathy with our envy and aversion to his happiness than we have with his happiness. It is seldom that with all this he succeeds. We suspect the sincerity of his humility, and he grows weary of this constraint. 
In a little time, therefore, he generally leaves all his old friends behind him, some of the meanest of them excepted, who may, perhaps, condescend to become his dependents. Nor does he always acquire any new ones. The pride of his new connections is as much affronted at finding him their equal as that of the old ones had been by his becoming their superior, and it requires the most obstinate and persevering modesty to atone for this mortification to either. He generally grows weary too soon, and is provoked by the sullen and suspicious pride of the one, and by the saucy contempt of the other, to treat the first with neglect and the second with petulance, till at last he grows habitually insolent and forfeits the esteem of all. If the chief part of human happiness arises from the consciousness of being beloved, as I believe it does, though sudden changes of fortune seldom contribute much to happiness, he is happiest who advances more gradually to greatness whom the public destines to every step of his preferment long before he arrives at it, in whom, upon that account, when it comes, it can excite no extravagant joy, and with regard to whom it cannot reasonably create either any jealousy in those he overtakes, or any envy in those he leaves behind. Mankind, however, more readily sympathize with those smaller joys which flow from less important causes. It is decent to be humble amidst great prosperity, but we can scarce express too much satisfaction in all the little occurrences of common life, in the company with which we spent the evening last night, in the entertainment that was set before us, in what was said and what was done, in all the little incidents of the present conversation, and in all those frivolous nothings which fill up the void of human life. Nothing is more graceful than habitual cheerfulness, which is always founded upon a peculiar relish for all the little pleasures which common occurrences afford. We readily sympathize with it. It inspires us with the same joy, and makes every trifle turn up to us in the same agreeable aspect in which it presents itself to the person endowed with this happy disposition. Hence it is that youth, the season of gaiety, so easily engages our affections. That propensity to joy, which seems even to animate the bloom, and to sparkle from the eyes of youth and beauty, though in a person of the same sex, exalts even the aged to a more joyous mood than ordinary. They forget, for a time, their infirmities, and abandon themselves to those agreeable ideas and emotions to which they have long been strangers, but which, when the presence of so much happiness recalls them to their breast, take their place there like old acquaintance, from whom they are sorry to have ever been parted, and whom they embrace more heartily upon account of this long separation. It is quite otherwise with grief. Small vexations excite no sympathy, but deep affliction calls forth the greatest. The man who is made uneasy by every little disagreeable incident, who is hurt if either the cook or the butler have failed in the least article of their duty, who feels every defect in the highest ceremonial of politeness, whether it be shown to himself or to any other person, who takes it amiss that his intimate friend did not bid him good morrow when they met in the forenoon, and that his brother hummed a tune all the time he himself was telling a story, who is put out of humor by the badness of the weather when in the country, by the badness of the roads when upon a journey, and by the want of company and dullness of all public diversions when in town, such a person, I say, though he should have some reason, will seldom meet with much sympathy. Joy is a pleasant emotion, and we gladly abandon ourselves to it upon the slightest occasion. 
We readily, therefore, sympathize with it in others, whenever we are not prejudiced by envy. But grief is painful, and the mind, even when it is our own misfortune, naturally resists and recoils from it. We would endeavor either not to conceive it at all, or to shake it off as soon as we have conceived it. Our aversion to grief will not, indeed, always hinder us from conceiving it in our own case upon very trifling occasions, but it constantly prevents us from sympathizing with it in others when excited by the like frivolous causes, for our sympathetic passions are always less irresistible than our original ones. There is, besides, a malice in mankind, which not only prevents all sympathy with little uneasinesses, but renders them in some measure diverting. Hence the delight which we take in raillery, and in the small vexation which we observe in our companion when he is pushed and urged and teased upon all sides. Men of the most ordinary good breeding dissemble the pain which any little incident may give them, and those who are more thoroughly formed to society turn, of their own accord, all such incidents into raillery, as they know their companions will do for them. The habit which a man, who lives in the world, has acquired of considering how everything that concerns himself will appear to others, makes those frivolous calamities turn up in the same ridiculous light to him, in which he knows they will certainly be considered by them. Our sympathy, on the contrary, with deep distress, is very strong and very sincere. It is unnecessary to give an instance. We weep even at the feigned representation of a tragedy. If you labor, therefore, under any signal calamity, if by some extraordinary misfortune you are fallen into poverty, into diseases, into disgrace and disappointment, even though your own fault may have been in part the occasion, yet you may generally depend upon the sincerest sympathy of all your friends, and, as far as interest and honor will permit, upon their kindest assistance, too. But if your misfortune is not of this dreadful kind, if you have only been a little balked in your ambition, if you have only been jilted by your mistress, or only henpecked by your wife, lay your account with the raillery of all your acquaintance. End of section 4